and Kyle. Appreciate you guys. They lead us in worship. I don't know if you, if you guys think about it. It's a little bit of work involved in what they're doing. and I really appreciate it. You know, before we do anything else, I want to stop and uh, ask you to join me in uh, just join me in praying for our brother, Rod Porter. Rod is in the hospital. He's going to have his gallbladder removed tomorrow, but he's in a little early for a gallstone, I think. Isn't that right? Yeah. Would you agree with me in prayer for our brother, please? Gracious Lord, we come before you this morning on behalf of our brother Rod. And Lord, we just ask for your grace, your mercy, and your love to be poured over him. That your peace that surpasses understanding would be the testimony of his lips. That it would just uh, fill him and be around him. Lord, we pray for your grace and and uh, wisdom over those that are caring for him. We say for us, pray for a safe procedure for Rod tomorrow and for a speedy recovery. Lord, let him know how much you love him. Let him know how much we love him. Let's be with him now. We trust him to your mercy, Lord. We pray it in Christ's name. I miss being here last week. I always miss being here if I'm not here. And... Uh, and not very often do I miss church to go hunting, but I'm going to tell you guys, that's what I did. <laughs> Quail season was ending in Arizona, and I don't know, Brian, I just had to get one more whack in, you know. And uh, we didn't harm the quail population very bad at all. But I was thinking this morning when we were driving in uh, where I was last Sunday morning, it was... Uh, in southeast Arizona, up kind of high in the Penalino Mountains, and it had snowed. Uh, yeah, we were idiots for going down there in snow and rain to hunt birds, but it had snowed and rained most of the day before, snowed through the night, and then last Sunday was this uh, clear, cloudless morning. I don't know how many times this ever happened to you in your life, but you're just in a place where... Uh, all of a sudden, <laughs> the sun just coming up, streaming across the desert, lighting up the snow on top of the mountains and everything. It's almost like a crushing beauty, you know? The beauty is so, it's so strong that you're just speechless. It takes your breath away. It's not dissimilar, by the way, to uh, the first chance we have to hold a new baby, like Clayton. And I, I haven't had this pulpit since uh, Peggy and I had a new granddaughter who was born week after, week before, week after, Clayton, yeah. Such a precious thing. May, those may not seem like the same thing, holding a newborn baby or seeing, uh, seeing the beauty of God's creation, but they're both breathtaking to me. I love it. I just wanted to share it with you. If you've uh, been here much, you know that we're going through the book of James. James' epistle to the 12 tribes. James was basically the pastor in Jerusalem. And, uh, and his ministry was to Jewish believers. All right? And the book of James is uh, it's kind of packed. 
I think it's safe to say it's packed. He hits right in. You know, he doesn't spend a lot of time in the buildup or the warm-up. He just starts driving home all these practical applications. And uh, last Sunday, um, Justin um, took us from, uh, what, verse 8 through verse 13 about the royal law. James referred to the royal law. That's loving your neighbor as yourself. And he talked to us about mercy and extending mercy and being merciful. This morning, by God's grace, we're going to go on a little ways. Uh, 14 through 19, and Nate, I'm not going to promise that I'm not going to go past 19, so if it happens, it happens, all right? You good with that? By the way, I was going to give Ridge a hard time. Where is he? I was going to ask him if there was a football game this last week, and who won, and who the quarterback. Where, where's your family, Nate? They're in Denver. Uh, oh, okay. Well, tell Ridge I was thinking about him. I didn't watch the whole game. I saw the last few minutes, and I was thinking about Ridge when I watched Mahomes do his magic. I wouldn't put money against that guy, I'll tell you what. Nate mentioned this when we started into James. I want to just do a little bit of review. Uh, Martin Luther wasn't real wild about this epistle. Is that a safe statement? <laughs> In fact, he wrote at one time that he considered it an epistle of straw, a straw-y epistle, meaning not worth very much. Uh, that's well known. What's not as well known is that he repented of that later. He accepted Jane, James as being his canon of scripture, although he questions its canonicity at one point. He, he later said, no, it's an inspired word of God. But... A lot of people have tried to make, and especially over this passage we're going to be in this morning, they've tried to make a lot of contention maybe between James and Paul. You know, some would say, well, Paul wrote what, 13, 14? James only wrote one, so Paul wins, right? He wrote more, so he comes out on top. Or some would say, well, which one was written first? Because it's hard to identify that. We don't actually know which one was written first. But I think if we go back to Acts 15 or Acts 21, where we have the account of James and Paul interacting with one another, I see no evidence in the word that they were, that they were butting heads over anything, right? In fact, it was James when, if you recall in Acts 15, he was the one who said, after all the discussion, he said, okay, brothers, here's what, you know, here's what we should do. And uh, kind of brought peace and clarity to the situation. Called, his, called Paul as, you know, his blessed brother, sent him off with a, with a letter to the church. And, uh, and uh, so I don't, I don't personally see if there's any evidence in the word that, that Paul and James were, you know, were doctrinally butting heads or, or uh, in any contention with one another. Many have tried to make something of that. We're going we're gonna to start just by reading this passage today. I'll start with verse 14, James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brother, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, and it do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith that has no works is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, 
you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. I'll stop there for right now, although we might go further in a bit. I want to point out something real quickly before we step away and look at some other scripture. Verse 14, James says, what use is it? Verse 16, what use is it? Verse 17, <laughs> it has no, it's, it's dead if it has no works. I'm jumping ahead now to 20, faith without works is useless. Jump down clear to 26, faith without works is dead. I think there's a common theme here, all right? And we don't have to be uh, Oxford scholars to pick it out. James is saying, if you're professing a faith, if you're claiming a faith, and it's devoid of any action, it's devoid of any works, uh, it's not real. That's what he's saying. You know, he's not discriminating between, I don't believe, between two kinds of real faith, like a, a weak one and a, and, a, uh, and a more live one. He's discriminating between one that's dead or live, not different levels of liveliness maybe, but he's discriminating between one that's absolutely dead. Now, why did I, why did I jo jump over and mention Paul? Because, because if we look at a couple of things that Paul says in Romans or Galatians, and we will, um, in fact, the, if you picked up the scripture uh, list that I, that I gave, I've really just broken into two categories. We're going to look at some scriptures that say faith doesn't have anything, to, or, or salvation doesn't have anything to do with works. It's just faith. And then we're going to look at some scriptures that say, well, wait a minute. There's some, there's some action involved with real faith. I put, uh, I think, three of those verses, three, four, put four of them together on that list, didn't I? Um, it's Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, and Hebrews 10.38. You don't even need to turn to all of them. Uh, they all are quoting the first one, Habakkuk 2.4. I will read it. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. Romans 1, 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. Galatians 3, 11, Clearly no one relies on the law, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. And Hebrews 10, 38, But my righteous one will live by faith. By faith, but I lump those together. They're all they're all requotes of the first one. All right, and if you distilled down what Martin Luther had to say when he nailed the ninety-five theses to the Castle Church door in Wittenberg, it was this: if you distilled down everything that that Luther really, really cared about or was revealed to him, it was this, the just will live by faith. Luther was in the Catholic Church. By the way, I didn't know if Mo was going to be here this morning. My sister-in-law, who's Catholic, <laughs> I thought I might be preaching her this morning, so I wish I was. It's all right. Um, 
Luther lived in a time when the church was selling indulgences. You know, they were taking money for uh, to cover sins and all all sorts of all sorts of things. And and he and he saw in the word, no, that's not right. That's not it. God's looking on our heart, and he and he wants to see faith. And the just will live by faith. I think the just shall live by faith was Luther's battle cry. Right. That's what, he, that's what he hung everything onto. That's why he lumped these verses together. All these are in Paul's epistles, and Paul hammered this point over and over and over and over. The just will live by faith. Let's look at a, let's look at a couple of others while we're here. One of the pillar ones, Romans um, 3.28. Did I tell you guys, how many of you know I lost my Bible last fall? Remember that? Yeah. So now I have one with tabs, and it's harder to find things with tabs than it was without the tabs. So if I'm a little slow shuffling here, be patient. Romans 3, verse 28. Paul says it real plainly. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Let's look at Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And Philippians 3.19. I'm not trying to be exhaustive here. I just want to be clear what the word has to say about this topic and especially present what Paul presented in his letters over and over and over. Philippians 3.19, excuse me, 3.9, did I say 19? 3.9. I'll back up a little to 8. Philippians 3.8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Titus 3.5 He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Not on the basis of deeds we have done. And the last one I have in this list is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which... I think, Nate, you said 
Glad to see that one in there. Most of these are passages we know by heart, should know by heart. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Okay, that's not a full list, but that's a pretty good list of scriptures that say our salvation is not based on the deeds we do. We know this, don't we? I hope we know this. Nothing we've ever done, nothing we can ever do, nothing we can ever scheme up can in any way earn our salvation. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But when we read what James says here, when he says, well, wait a minute, if, if your faith doesn't have works, it's dead, it sounds like, well, there's a little bit of tension there's a little bit of tension built in here. Paul just said over and over and over, it has nothing to do with deeds, it has nothing to do with works, nothing, nothing, nothing. And now James says, yeah, well, no action. Question the faith. If there's no deeds, we question the faith. If there's no works, if there's no fruit, we question the faith. You know, one of the key words, if you look here, uh, go back to... Uh, our passage, James, we'll just look at 14 again. What use is it, my brother, if a man says, here's the key word, if a man says, your, your, uh, your version or your translation may say claims. That's really what, you know, if you, if you think about Paul emphasized one thing, James emphasizing another thing. I think always when we approach these things, one of the questions we ought to ask ourselves is, what was the problem they were dealing with? What was the problem Paul was addressing? And what was the problem James was addressing? Paul was addressing people who had a misunderstanding about works. <laughs> and James was addressing people who had a misunderstanding about faith. You know, really. They were, they were out of whack one way or the other. In Paul's case, he kept reminding him, no, you are not going to earn salvation by the, through the law. Can't do it. Won't happen. Has to be based in faith in, the, in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's it. And James is saying, apparently, he had a bunch of people who were making proclamations about things that weren't necessarily being borne out by their actions. We've never seen that before, have we? We're surrounded by it, really. I think when I, when I read this passage in James, I think, wow, this could have been written this year to the church in the United States. Honestly. Key word, says, or claims. You know, we're probably not as skeptical as we ought to be about people's claims of faith. I'm just saying we shouldn't be uh, we shouldn't be knotheads about it. If 
But I think when someone makes a proclamation to us, we have every reason to sit back and say, well, is that borne out? Is, does that appear to be true? Let me give you an example. Let's see. Got to think of an example. Is it, this is a baseball church, all right? So I'll use a baseball example. Nate, if I told you that I could throw a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, would you believe me? I don't want to see it. <laughs> there you go. That's it. Probably if I told you, could I throw a 25-mile-an-hour fastball, you might say you wouldn't see it. <laughs> but the point is, easy for me to say. I could go around telling people, yeah, I could throw a 95. I'm, me and Nolan Ryan, we, we're, we're fast, man. And hum that thing in. And it could be totally without any basis, in fact. Could be completely. Now, when you get to be my age, or, you know, someone would probably look at me and go, no, you're not throwing a 95 mile an hour fastball. When I was younger, maybe I could have fooled somebody. The point is, making the claim is one thing. Talk is cheap. Talks real cheap. And we live in an age, when you don't get anything else, let's walk away with this. We live in an age where making proclamations and claims is given a full credit. It's given full credit for being valid. And I submit to you, James was addressing an issue here where there were people making proclamations, claims, or statements about their faith, and he's simply pointing this out. If there's no fruit, if there's no works, if there's no demonstrated living out of the royal law, Justin, your faith is not real. You're calling something by a name that is not what Paul was talking about when he was using the word, all right? Maybe this is over basic, and if it is, forgive me for hammering on it, but I just think it's so, it's so vital for us to understand because how, how long would it take, how long does it take us to determine the validity of a person's faith? You ever think about that? I would submit in human terms, it takes a while. You can't just walk up and say, I'm so-and-so and I, you know, I'm a bond servant of Christ and I'm going to watch that person's life and see if there's evidence that what they just told me is true. Does that make sense? How long does it take God to know? He already knew. He already knew before we asked. <laughs> It's instantaneous. Why? Because he reads hearts. He knows hearts. So he knows genuine faith. Got to jump ahead a little bit. Is that all right? Okay. Did you ever notice that both Paul and James use Abraham as their example? Paul's using Abraham as the example of it's not by works, it's by faith. And he's citing Genesis 15 where God made a promise to Abraham. Well, we can go back. Let's just go back and read it. I'm sorry, I don't have it in my I don't have it in my notes list.
Genesis 15. Let's just start with five because it's a little, I think that leads into it. And he took him outside and said, this is the Lord took Abraham outside. Look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. This is Abraham who has no offspring. He's told his number of stars in the sky. That's, what his, that's how many descendants he's going to have. And this is the next verse that both Paul and James quote. Paul quotes it to say, see, it wasn't based on works. It's based on belief. It's based on faith. Verse six, then he, he who, Abraham, believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. By the way, I should have said this at the beginning. I'm reading from New American Standard and not the new one, like the old one, because, uh, that's what I started with, so I stick with it. Abraham believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's a powerful statement. Jump up to look at what Paul says in uh, Romans chapter 4. When he is citing Abraham... Romans 4, well, let's just start with verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. The quote from Genesis 15. What James goes on to say is, verse 22 or excuse me, Genesis 22, when the Lord told Abraham to go sacrifice his son, Isaac. Something hard for us to even wrap our mind around. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around. But James is saying this was the fulfillment, the fulfillment of Abraham's belief was his willingness to go do this thing. Now we all know the angel of the Lord stopped and said, oh, don't. And they got the ram from the thicket and they've completed the sacrifice, but not with Isaac. If we look at verse 12, Genesis 22, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son your only son from me. And I just want to keep in this chapter for a second, drop down to verse 16. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed why because you have obeyed my voice abraham's initial belief his trust in god back in 15 out under the starry sky 
Here's the proof that it remained. Here's the proof that he was true to it. Here's the proof that it was completely fulfilled by his actions. I need a bigger sticker here in James. Stick a pin in here so I can get back to it faster. James gives us this example. If a brother or sister is without clothing or need of daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be filled, and you don't give them what is necessary to their body, what, good, what use is it? This is James, a pastor, just, you know, teaching by an example. This happened. And on down, this is a hypothetical in 18. Some, some translations say someone will say. Mine says someone may well say. You have faith. I have works. Show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. We have to... We should be... We should be vigilant about not follow or swallowing hook, line, and sinker every statement we hear someone make about their faith. I think there's, I think there's just cause to say, well, I'm going to remain a little bit skeptical while I watch. I tell people often, you know, I could walk up to you and say, hi, my name's Steve, trust me. I don't know how you learn to trust somebody, okay? I could ask you to trust me. You could ask me to trust you. But the way we're going to learn to trust one another is we have to watch each other walk through some things. And you're going to see how I behave in certain situations or how I respond in certain situations. I'm going to see how you behave and respond in certain situations. And I don't mean this in the sense that we're walking around, you know, with our notes, with a scorecard, keeping track of each other. I just mean, this is, how, this is how trust and faith are built and proven, right? It takes, it takes demonstrated action. I could say all the things in the world to my wife about how much I love her and everything else, but if I, but if I behave differently toward her, that's just hollow talk, right? It's just hollow talk. And the same is true in any relationship. We can, make, we can make all kinds of professions about our allegiance and our faithfulness and how much we care and all that sort of stuff. But what really, really speaks volumes is do we, do we live it out? Do we walk it out? Was James really disagreeing with Jesus? Or, or Paul? Or any of the apostles in what he taught? I say not at all. I want to look at I want to look at some other scriptures, and I think these are on the list that I gave you, aren't they? Yeah. Let's start with this one. First John two, four through six. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Whoa. That's kind of stark, isn't it? The one who says, I've come to know him. The one who says, I have faith. 
Yep, I claim faith. And does not keep his commandments is a liar. John 3.36, this is Gospel of John 3.36. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And this time last year we were in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Let's look at Matthew 7 really quickly. Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You know, the common thread here is, it can't just be talk. Our faith can't just be talk. We can't just say, Lord, Lord. We can't just learn the lingo and be able to spew the lingo. We have to have a walk or actions that are in alignment. They're in accord. They're in agreement with the claim we're making. We were in Titus chapter 3. If you go back there, this is just a few. We, we, we went to 3, 5 to look at um, verses that say, you know, our uh, salvation doesn't have anything to do with our deeds. Now if we look at um, Titus 3, 8, this is a trustworthy statement concerning these things I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to what? To engage in good deeds. Faith without any action isn't real. It isn't real faith. It's talk. And let's look at Ephesians 2.10. This is just past where we left off a little bit ago when we were looking at um, the verses that that make it clear that our salvation is based on faith in Christ. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. For good works. We weren't created for nothing. When, when James says what good is it? What use is it? We're not to be useless. We're not to be good for nothing. We're to be, we were created. How many of you believe that? You were created for good works. You were created by God. You'd be his hands and, and uh, minister to people around you and pour out his love on people around you and do his, do his work. James was really just emphasizing this simple fact. Talk's cheap. Talk's really cheap. We didn't quite finish on verse 19, and I want to look at it real quickly. Why does James throw this in here? It almost seems like he threw in verse 19. Uh, it just sort of popped in there. 
Again, in 18, someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. What is James saying? That a, a statement that says, I believe there is a God. That's not faith. Or, I, or even I believe there's one God. There's, there's a God. There's just one God. That's still not it. <laughs> I believe there's one God. I believe Jesus Christ was his son. Still not it. I believe Jesus Christ was his son, and he died on the cross and shed his blood for the redemption of mankind. You could, you could believe all that and be right equal with what the demons believe. That's why James is driving home this point. And, and we need to understand it because we're surrounded by it. We're surrounded by people who have been deceived and mistaught into thinking that intellectual assent with an idea or with the concept is faith. That's not what it is. Faith is, faith is like, no, I put my trust here. I'm not just intellectually agreeing with the idea of God, even Jehovah God, even a monotheistic God with a, with a son. All those things, we could believe them intellectually and they have no impact on changing our life. All right? They only have that when that faith is trust, like we've placed our trust. My brother Brian's not here. When he listens, he'll be glad I hit this one. When we give up the right to ourself and we say, I don't own myself, Lord, you own me. That's trust, all right? That's trust. That's fully turning over the steering wheel, like, I am not, I do not own myself. And I think anyone who, who enters into a relationship with the Lord, at some point they have to recognize what right does, what right does God, what right does Christ have over me, have over my life? We don't hear that said really, but that's what it boils down to. He created us. He holds the right over us. We contend to think that we have the rights that we hold on our own. Mm -mm. No. He holds the right over us. He holds the right over all his creation. What's James saying in verse 19? Don't be fooled by thinking that just because you intellectually believe something or you intellectually agree with something, or you intellectually assent to something, that that constitutes saving faith. Because it doesn't. In fact, it doesn't have much to do with saving faith at all. I'm gonna tell you that James wasn't in contradiction to Paul. Paul wasn't in contradiction to James. 
although there have been literally people who've spent a good portion of their life over that contention. <laughs> there's been books written. <laughs> there's probably been battles fought over it. Certainly there's been uh, theological battles fought and still are. There still are because there's different camps on this. The word is clear. Our salvation is not based on, on any good deeds we can do, all right? It's equally clear. Genuine faith will always produce fruit. No fruit, no faith. It's fake. It's, it's cheap talk. It's something else unless, unless there's action associated with it, unless there's fruit born by it. Jesus said it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you know by the fruit. By your fruit, you'll know them. Good trees don't produce bad fruit. Bad trees don't produce good fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. It takes us a lot longer to judge or ascertain what kind of fruit we're seeing than it does for God to see it. Because God, God sees our hearts. He sees the thoughts and intents of our heart. I really promised myself that uh, I would be completely out of character today and get done a lot sooner than I usually do. So I'm going so to do that. Because most people go, oh, no, it's Steve. He talks for like an hour every time. Try not to. You know, I want to look at one more. I just want to wrap up and, and we'll look at one scripture because I think this one should always be before us. And it should definitely be before us right now if anything we're looking at today is striking like a, a chord in your heart or you're going, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, I never thought of it that way. Or this sounds... Uh, this is making me question my, my own faith. Well, if you are, do business with it. Don't, don't mess around. Looking at, I think it's the last one I put on your list. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Let's read it again. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith and examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize that this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed he's not? That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying... We should be examining ourselves. Many years ago, do anybody remember the, uh, what was that, WWJD bracelets? Yeah, I never had one. But around that same time, you see bumper stickers that said, if you were convicted or if you were uh, accused of being a, a, a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you. I never had the bumper sticker either. But I would just say James chapter 2 I think this is what James is saying. If we were brought on trial and don't think that couldn't happen in your lifetime to be brought on trial for being a bond servant of Jesus Christ. 
may sound melodramatic, but there's a hatred. The world has an absolute hatred centered around Christ. It's, it's, it, it bugs them. It gets, it gets under their skin. We're not diving into that right now, but I am saying this. If you were brought on trial for being a bond servant of Jesus Christ, is there enough evidence to convict you? Something to think about, huh? I appreciate your patience. I love you guys. I really missed being here last week. It's like when I'm not here, it's like being apart from my family. I just I love you guys. Thanks for your patience. I'm going to pass it over to whomever has the community today. Is that Dave?